This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, some new features out of ForeFlight. And a Cessna 337 is new again. Also, if you've got Cuba travel plans, you might want to think again. The Air Race Classic is coming up soon. All right, Dave, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. And uh, David, our guest this week, somebody I, I've come to know well, and hopefully the readers of AOPA have as well, that's uh, Natalie Hoover, one of our columnists. So I was reading up a little bit on Natalie. Did you know that she's a, she was a beach jet contract captain? Of course, she's an aviation writer. And I do read her monthly column. So, uh, and I met her at Oshkosh. So she was really nice. And it was great to say hello and meet her in person. Yeah, yeah. So we'll have her in a little bit. She's talking about kind of flying with a young family. And uh, she's a DPE as well. So you'll get maybe a few secrets here and there. So, so we'll talk to her a little later on. But first, let's start with the news for flight. Now, they come out with features all the time. But this one, I think, is a little interesting. It's the takeoff and landing performance data that they've just added to the highest tier subscription. That's right, Ian. And you and I were chatting about this a little bit before the podcast. You know, I don't get the top tier prescription, which sells for 300 bucks a year. I'm in the one level below that. But it sure does add a lot to the performance value of that app. And uh, you were explaining it to me a little bit beforehand. You had Dave Hirschman and uh, Richard McSpadden doing sort of a side-by-side comparison there in a, in a couple of aircraft. And, and how accurate was that? Do you remember? Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. This will be a story coming up in Pilot, but they took the app, and, and the way this feature works is basically it serves you takeoff and landing distance, as well as a few other things for pro-pilots or multi-pilots. It serves you runway information in advance, and so it takes all the weather, the current weather, your aircraft, the wind, the temperature, all that kind of stuff, and it says, okay, you're going to need this amount of runway. And if as you're approaching a, an airport, say you're on your trip and, and you're coming in, It'll give you both the landing and takeoff distance for that airport. So it's really cool. And so they went out and tested it with a Bonanza and a 182 and found some really interesting stuff. They found actually that in both cases, the data was off 
and in one airplane it showed a little bit short for some of the parameters and for the other airplane it showed long and so there wasn't even a, a consistent sort of uh, incorrect number but four flight's quick to say and of course it, it, the the way they program this is they just take manufacturer data well that's the other thing and uh we always try to build in a little bit extra fudge factor you know folks like myself who are not factory test pilots in a brand new airplane mm -hmm. So uh, mm -hmm. in ideal test conditions, which it, rarely does that trifecta occur at the same time. But I do think that that could be helpful, especially if you're trying to contemplate a go around or if the weather's kind of dicey or if you're just not 100 percent familiar with your aircraft. This would be probably some pretty good starting figures to get going with at, at, at the very least. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, you know, um, the Air Safety Institute has for a long time said to add 50% on the takeoff and landing calculations. I do it myself. Yeah, yeah. And so I'll give a spoiler away. You'll see this in the next issue of Pilot. But Dave says, man, just double it. It's like you might as well just go ahead and double it because what they found is if you want a margin on top of the margin, it's like you might as well just go and double it. Well, you know, unless you're on top of your game and you're flying every day or at least a couple times a week, Ian, I think that that's probably pretty good because folks are a little bit rusty. I mean, uh, we do need to add a little bit. And before we get back in the saddle and feel comfortable again, it makes total sense to add a little bit more to that factor. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. So, hey, I love talking about these projects. Uh, new airplane that's, well, not a new airplane, new hybrid electric motor system that's come out. This is the Ampere. Now, they flew this on a um, Cessna 337 out there in Camarillo, California. And uh, this is just a really cool concept and a really interesting stepping stone, I think, to the next level. It is, Ian. And the one thing that our podcast listeners probably know about the 337 is that it's a push-pull Cessna and both engines are on the basically there's one in front and one behind. So you don't have that asymmetrical thrust of a typical twin with engines mounted on a wing. If you go and dig back in the AOPA files a little bit and some of our aircraft performance data, you know, you'll find that that rear engine it was a 210 horsepower Continental. But so they've just replaced it with Ampere's proprietary electric propulsion system. And they've actually uh, derated that engine. It's it's capable of producing 180 kilowatts of power, which is, to you and me, it's 240 horsepower, but it's limited now to 215 horsepower, so it doesn't really exceed the maximum power for which the airplane was originally certified. And this is according to a story that Barry Schiff wrote for us, and Barry, I think, got a chance to watch this in action just over the weekend. Yeah, that is interesting, and I love how it, it's it's so interesting when you talk about like what the future is going to hold in terms of hybrid electric and these really complicated systems that everybody's kind of talking about. And so these guys just, they they took what should be kind of a complicated concept and said, no, no, wait a second, we've got a twin. Let's just lop off one of the gasoline engines and put an electric engine, and all of a sudden we've got this hybrid electric airplane. And it apparently flew pretty predictably. It did. I was surprised that a lot of the uh, performance figures were about the same as with uh, with two gasoline-powered engines. And as Barry points out in the article, the uh, the goal of the company is to actually make that battery be a separate pod unit that attaches underneath the belly of the airplane so it doesn't take up much room inside the cabin or the cockpit for those batteries, which we know weigh quite a ton. And so then he brings up the whole point that the electrical you know, power system adds about 400 pounds to the empty weight of the airplane, but you don't need as much fuel. So it kind of balances itself out. It's a real interesting concept, you know, with that single line of thrust as well. 
Yeah, it is. And and I think a smart airplane to test on at first I looked at it and I thought, man, a, a really a Skymaster? It's like you're going to go with a Skymaster? But a really, uh, you know, this is why I'm not an engineer because I wouldn't have considered this. But because you've got that centerline thrust, any sort of, you know, problem in the testing becomes a much less critical safety issue. It's just, okay, well, we lost some we lost some available power. That's it. You don't have sort of yaw to deal with and, you know, the different power surges of the different engines and things like that. That's like, they don't have to worry about any of that. They just have to worry about kind of about total power. So that was a really, really smart idea, I think. It is. And, you, you know, I used to fly an air coupe, so I always have had a fondness in my heart for the twin rudder design, you know, the twin. And basically this airplane has the twin boom. So it's pretty, you know, it's pretty close yeah. to that. But I always thought those were cool airplanes, you know. But I asked Dave Hirschman about the 337. This was back when it had a few bucks to spend. And, and he wasn't real fond of uh, of that airplane. I think that that rear engine had some overheating issues, Ian. And this might actually solve some of that. Uh, some of those. It could be a wives' tales. I'm not sure. But it certainly looks like this will be a different way to power that airplane. But before we leave the story, I was going to throw at our podcast listeners a couple of the performance figures. Because I was astounded at what that that Skymaster could really do. Yeah, let's hear it. So normally it has an 18,000-foot service ceiling, 952 nautical mile range, and cruises at 169 knots, a full fuel payload of 617 pounds, and a max payload of 1,505 pounds. Not bad. That's really not bad. Now it's quite a capable aircraft. And so if the hybrid electric gas fuel airplane uh, comes on market and, uh, as the company, as Ampere thinks it will, and they're counting on it, and they were saying that the, because of the trade-offs, you know, things like the payload won't change that much. And I'm assuming the service ceiling and the nautical mile range would probably be about the same as well as the cruise. So that's pretty interesting stuff. And if they could hit all those figures... I'll be very impressed. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. Yeah, we wish them the best of luck. And moving on, Cuba. Now, we've talked about traveling to Cuba a few times. You've been there as a journalist. I went actually in a bonanza for a story for AOPA. And ever since Trump has been elected, there's been some kind of movement on some of the stuff that Obama had opened up. And so now it's looking like in terms of the private travel that uh, if you didn't get your time in before and you didn't get your trip in before, that maybe you're out of luck. Well, I think the door closed on June 5th, Ian, for most of general aviation. And that is a sad thing because a lot of people read your article and were following along with you guys when y'all went down there. And I certainly was hoping I could get to go one day as a general aviation pilot. But sadly, that will not be the case because on April 17th of this year, as you know, the White House announced that the administration was holding the regime accountable for, you know, past uh, issues with Cuba. And so really this just mm -hmm. just nailed the coffin shut on GA traveling to Cuba. So some of these people-to-people -people trips, which I think is kind of how you guys went down there. I know when I was working at the newspaper in Atlanta, we, we were doing journalism, and it was a person-to-person -person trip. And that's that was kind of the exception, but that's no longer the case. And you're just out of luck unless you get on a commercial aircraft like a Delta or Southwest Jet, American Jet, something like that. Yeah, so it's it's a little bit of a paradox. And in fact, Eric Norber, who we went with and who really is an expert on GA travel to Cuba, he describes it this way because he's got clients that have booked trips. And so the person, if you had booked a trip prior to the date, you could do the people-to-people -people trip. But in many cases, you know, with his clients, obviously, the private GA travel is done immediately. And so these people had like paid for permits and 
you know, handling and everything else in advance. And it's like, they're done. They can't, they can't do it. So you either got to book a, an airline flight or I don't know, probably lose out on all of it. So it's a, it's a real shame. And, and, you know, I will say, I know a lot of the quote unquote, you know, official reason uh, that this stuff is being rolled back is that it, you know, they say that the money for the tourism goes to the government. And obviously that is the case for some things, you know, it's uh, government handling at the airport and, you know, the government's, you're buying your fuel from them and, and all that kind of stuff. And you're paying permits and everything else. Well, ho- the hotels, hotels and food as well, Ian, as well as ground transportation, a lot of that gets funneled back to the government. Yeah. And obviously there are taxes, but I will say, you know, our guide, some of the private restaurants of, uh, of which there are many now, the driver, the place we stayed, all that stuff is private. And and so that money was going to individuals. So it... Um, so the little restaurants were called, Pal- what they call Palomars? It's like where you eat at someone's house. It was really kind of a cool thing. Yeah. You, got to, you got to meet the people and you got to know them. And golly, they were hardworking folks. And I, I was scared to go down there, to be honest with you. I thought it was going to be big and bad and kind of evil, but I kind of got a warm, fuzzy feeling of, you know, from, from the people. Yeah. The people yeah. were just hardworking people and they just didn't have a whole lot. The, Absolutely. A lot of the shelves uh, on the grocery stores were barren and that was just a fact of life. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. So, so, you know, who knows, maybe in the future that'll open up again, but at least for now, uh, if you had plans to fly GA to Cuba, it's like, you're going to have to scrap them and, and, uh, I don't know, go to the Bahamas or Puerto Rico or something instead, I suppose. <laughs> oh, that that would also be nice, and Puerto Rico would be just fine. And yeah, goodness knows they could use the help after battling back from a couple of hurricanes there. That's true. That's true. And we'll be right back. Hey, moving on back into the states here, the Air Race Classic. This is something we talk about kind of every year. A really cool event, a female only event, and that's coming up in the next couple of weeks. It is, Ian. It's scheduled to start on June eighteenth, and now the the route this year, Ian, runs from Jackson, Tennessee. And it's 2,538 miles, and it ends up in Ontario, Canada. Well, let's say it's an international flight route this year. And, of course, neither, one, neither you nor I have ever been on it, but we have had AOPA pilots on the trip a couple of years ago when it was based out of Frederick, Maryland, and uh, the AOPA Angels. And I think they did pretty good. They, they said that it was a great trip. It's all about precision, and it's pretty tough to kind of get a handle on this, but the folks are, are graded by their performance, but by, by basically by meeting the performance figures that they have attested to that they could meet in their particular aircraft with their particular payload, you know, pilot and co-pilot at a minimum. And sometimes there are three people, including an observer, but it's a, it's a precision air race rally, VFR only and day only. Yeah. Yeah. It's essentially, I guess, the way it works is you get a handicap before the race starts and then you're sort of flying against yourself for the handicap. But the handicap is, as you mentioned, very complicated. But this is a really big event. I mean, there are like hundreds of people that either participate or help set up and and do the logistics. And it's a really cool environment. I mean, when it was at Frederick a couple of years ago, I was really surprised. It's just it's really positive and everybody becomes friends by the end. And it's it's just a really, really kind of neat thing. Absolutely. There are 15 college teams competing this year, Ian, and over 50, over 50 teams have entered. And you know that's about the norm, I think, in the past few years. And I spoke to a couple of them, uh, two women from West Michigan Aviation Academy, Tori Gann, who is a first officer on a jet, and Oakley Clay, who wants to become an air traffic control specialist. And they were gung-ho. They, now, they only knew each other 
peripherally during high school. They were in different grades, but they're going to get to know each other a lot better over 2,500 and some odd miles, you know, yeah. in the same cockpit. But they both had a great attitude, and uh, it's really great uh, also to see young people embrace aviation as much as they have. And I recently did a little aviation career day over at my daughter's high school, and I mentioned Tori, and, uh, and one of her things that she said was, that, that her whole goal was to inspire other students and especially females. And she basically said, you know, even going to the Jets, there were times when you aren't sure that you can do it and just don't give up. She said, this is a direct quote, it's a lot of work, but it's so, so, so worth it in the end. And I think that kind of positive attitude says a lot about these competitors. Yeah, that's that's great. That's great. Well, hey, we wish them all the best of luck on the trip and, uh, and hopefully they can place well and, and have a great time. Absolutely. Yeah. So, hey, speaking of it's a lot of hard, hard, hard work, Uber Elevate is going on right now as we record this in Washington, D.C. Now, this is a conference that they've been doing the past couple of years to kind of focus and get some energy around this idea of urban eVTOL. And uh, like previous years, there's some interesting stuff to come out and a fair amount of hype. So uh, we want to touch on that for just kind of a minute or two. But um, I don't know, David, what, did, what have you seen come out of it that you found interesting? I'm pretty excited about Embraer X, and that's a, a model that the Embraer folks have unveiled. And gosh, I mean, they have a lot of history with aviation. And, uh, you know, Embraer just partnered up with Boeing, believe it or not, a couple of months ago. So this is kind of pretty big news. But uh, the one thing that, that I was really focused on, Ian, besides their Uber X vehicle, was the fact that they really are looking at the infrastructure. And that's something that you and I have chatted about on the podcast a bunch of times. And I really think that air traffic control, the, that environment, from that all the way down to the public acceptance of this type of autonomous helicoptering is something that we really need to tackle before we go really much further. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great point. And I mean, it's just this week, you know, there was a fatal helicopter accident in New York City. And um, it was, I mean, it's, you know, it's national news. People, especially in New York, are understandably still freaked out about aircraft accidents around the city. And, you know, I mean, the governor was there. It's like, th these things are a big deal. And so to, to imagine that, you know, to have this vertical lift stuff going on over these people's heads day after day after day. I mean, after a while, obviously, that starts to kind of normalize a little bit, but it's it feels like we're still a pretty far ways off from that. That's true, and that that's what I was getting at. But I do think that this is something that's on the horizon. And as we as I mentioned uh, before we started the podcast, you and I chatted a little bit, and it looks like that overall, um, according to, to some figures, uh, the Deloitte & Touche, big accounting firm here, has said that the EV tall electric vertical takeoff and landing industry is going to go from $0 today to $1 billion by 2025, which is only a little bit more than five years away. So that is a significant ramp up in EV tall. Yeah, that is interesting. I, it's, it's also, you know, one thing that they, like we've talked about, they, they, do sort of concepts at these shows the past couple of years and, and lay out kind of a vision. And we will, you know, they, they go as crazy as there was a manufacturer that announced, uh, you know, big fanfare. There's a mock-up. It's like, you know, they spent a lot of money to go there and it was a concept of a vision is what they presented. And so really all it was, was a square box with some seats in it. I mean, that tells us nothing, but uh, us folks who are around in the, in the, I guess the uh, development stages of the internet kind of remember some of that as vaporware. Yeah. 
Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing there. So, uh, but, w- but one thing that they did say is that the whole Uber thing is going to start with, now this is a really novel concept. Are you ready? It is going to start with you get a car, you go to a heliport and you get on a helicopter and go to an airport. And that sounds very much to me like helicopter charter, which I think already works. Absolutely, it does. It's proven that it works. And you did mention New York and that tragic accident, but golly, and they have a ton of helicopter charters going on right there already. And you can point yourself to uh, Los Angeles, Atlanta, Chicago, some of the other big cities in the States, and of course, elsewhere around the world. And it's a very common thing to land on rooftops. And, you know, that's like, a, in fact, when you and I look at an aviation sectional chart right now, we can see that there are definitely are helipads on top of buildings. So that is not an uncommon thing at all. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's just kind of funny that we have these grand visions. And it's like, well, we're going to start with something that we already know works, you know, which is basically we're going to put an app to a charter. So baby steps, baby steps, I think. Well, let, yeah, I agree with you. Now, the one thing that looks like it's the huge, basically one of the, largest hurdles to get over is this power to weight kind of uh, a pass and so there's power on one end and weight on the other and you are a helicopter pilot yourself and you're very familiar i know with how this works but golly and until we can really get our our heads and our technology wrapped around more powerful batteries and more powerful engines that don't weigh as much it seems like the payload would be limited yeah very much so i agree i totally agree well, we'll keep an eye on them over the next couple of years, see what happens and, and how much more vaporware we can get out and real solutions and everything else. But um, if nothing else, it's cool to see some sci-fi a little bit and, and see where people's heads are. And uh, also, as folks are considering careers in engineering, science, technology, and math, this is something that our future aviators might very well embrace and help be a part of. Yeah, great point. Well, hey, let's uh, let's bring on Natalie uh, and chat for a few minutes. Natalie, like we said, is uh, a columnist for AOPA Pilot, uh, an examiner, and an airplane owner. Natalie Bingham Hoover, thank you so much for uh, joining us. We caught you on a rare day on the ground, actually, there in uh, Tennessee. I know. It's great. It's raining, so there's no flying for me today. (laughs) So a lot of folks will know you through the column, through AOPA. So uh, tell us a little bit about the column and and what you write about and and the kind of things that you like to cover. I find that I, I love thinking about how aviation and people mixed together and all the ways we kind of shape that. I don't love the technical aspect of aviation as far as writing goes. Uh, that feels more like school to me, but but I love thinking about how pilots interact with each other and interact with the airplane and, and how it shapes our lives outside of aviation. So that's kind of my thing. Okay. Yeah. I think a lot of times I would describe it, I don't know if you feel this way, but you, you tend to not be afraid to come across a little more, I guess, a little more vulnerable maybe than some colonists. You know, there's a history in aviation columns of of being like, I know everything and, you know, I'm the captain and this is the way it's going to be. And and you have a much more, I think, relatable voice there. And I don't know, is that on, on purpose or do, is that just sort of how you approach everything in aviation or is it maybe your background? Uh, thank you. I, I appreciate that. I, I don't know if, if that's my background, but I, I think there is a real value in 
vulnerability and, and being honest about our weaknesses. I just think it gives other people a chance to see that they're not alone and makes us all a little bit better. Okay. So tell me about, about you. How did you get into aviation? Well, my father flew in the Air Force and then for FedEx, and I just I got to see how much he loved his job and how much he loved aviation, uh, but I didn't think it was going to be a career for me. The summer after I graduated undergrad, I was set to go to grad school in the fall for journalism, and one of my uh, girlfriends just said, hey, I'm, I'm going to my flight lesson today. You want to come out and fly with me? And I did, and I loved it, and I never went to grad school. I just hung out at the airport for the next year, went through all my ratings. That's cool. So now you didn't get to fly with your dad very much then? No. So my dad passed away the year before I took that flying lesson. And I remember flying with him once when I was young. He had some kind of twin engine he and a buddy owned. And I think they flew me to my grandmother's house and dropped me off. But <laughs> but that's my only memory of flying with him. I was very young. Hmm. So he, he always, at least when you're older, I mean, aviation was a, a profession for him, not necessarily a, a recreational activity. It was, but, but he was really good about just being open with us about how much he loved his job and how he felt so lucky to have a career in aviation. He he always said the only job that would have been better was being a professional baseball player. <laughs> so he just he, he felt like he had won the lottery with his job. And so you, you ran through all your certificates and ratings. And uh, what, what did you do next? So I, I did the ratings. It took me about a year. Uh, and then I flight instructed at that same school where I had done all of my training. And then I did a little, little corporate work at that time, just right seat work, building time. And then at that time, the airlines, the regionals were hiring with really low hour uh, folks coming in. So I got my first job at the regionals with maybe 800 hours or something like that. So I flew with them for uh, a year, realized that the airline path was not what was going to make me happy. So I ended up coming back to the that same flight school and instructing, just kind of trying to wrap my head around what I was going to do next. Yeah. So why why weren't the airlines for you? What uh, what what didn't work for you? Well, I always say that it's a great path for everyone to try once if you want to have a career in aviation. The people are so much fun. The airplane was a blast, but I I realized that being home every night was more important to me than I thought it was. I had just gotten married the year before I started my airline job, and I missed my husband and I missed our home and. And now that I have kids, I can see how that would be so much worse for me. I'd, I'd really want to be home. So I'm, I'm glad I am where I am now. Yeah. And so you instructed for a little bit. And I know you continued to do a little bit of corporate flying. But uh, it seems like you really kind of hit your niche when you started, uh, when you became an examiner. Yeah. It's, it's not something I ever considered doing. And then a friend suggested that I get into it. And so I put my application in, and a couple years later, the FAA actually called and said they had an opening. And it, it's just been wonderful for me to get to be a part in somebody getting their private pilot certificate. It just is really rewarding, and plus the schedule is huge for me, quality of life. I get to be home and pick up the kids from school, so that means a lot. Yeah, so... You mentioned, you know, kind of bringing people into aviation and, and all that. But, I mean, what is it like, I guess, being an examiner? What's, you know, we obviously all of us have kind of seen it from the other side and very few from your side. So does it feel sort of fulfilling to do this? Is it is it kind of a chore sometimes? I mean, how do you how do you approach it day in and day out? I guess I would say that most of the time I really love 
being an examiner. There are bad days when when people don't do as well as you want them to do, and, and that really is no fun. But for the most part, it's just a blast getting to, to be a part of someone's biggest day. I mean, I remember every check ride I ever took. I really do. And, and the, the way those examiners treated me and their kindness, I, I will never forget that. So I, I just think it's a blessing to be a part of somebody's biggest day. So every local examiner has a reputation. You know, some are considered easy, some are hard, some are by the book, some you know they have a dedicated sort of list of things that they're going to do in order every time, and so everybody knows how it's going to go, but what uh, what do you think your local reputation is? Oh, <laughs> I don't know what it is. I, uh, hmm. I can tell you that I hope uh, people think I'm fair and thorough. I hope they think I do things by the book. That's, that's what I agreed to do. I don't know. I guess you'd have to ask some of my applicants. <laughs> All right. So you've you've seen enough of these now. You see trends, I guess, in, in the way people um, perform on check rides. So tell us about something that people really worry about that they probably shouldn't, that's just not worth it and, and really not a big deal. Well, I guess people worry that if they if they make some sort of mistake, then it's automatically going to be a failure and it's it's just not that way. The The standards say that you can make mistakes and you can deviate from the standards. As long as you make a correction back towards the standard, then then that's no problem. Now, you can't continue to repeat mistakes. You can't forget the big safety items like clearing turns and checklists, but you can really, um, you don't have to have a perfect day. Nobody's going to have a perfect day. And I think every examiner realizes that. So I, I try to point that out going in that you're not going to be perfect. I know that. Just when you make mistakes, try to correct them. And what about the opposite? What about something that you feel like people generally, I mean, as a group or, or kind of underprepared for, or you feel like you see are common weak areas? I would say that when the instructor trains a pilot for the check ride, when, when everything that they do in training is geared for passing the check ride, I think that's when we have problems. I think you just need to you need to teach somebody to be the very best pilot they can be. You need to follow the syllabus. And then when you get to the end, you start thinking about whether or not somebody is meeting standards or exceeding standards. But, but I think it's a problem when from the very first lesson you're talking about, um, this is what you're going to have to do to pass your check ride, or don't forget to do clearing turns on your check ride. I, I think it would just make a lot better pilot if we said, hey, we're going to do clearing turns every time because it's a, a safety item and it's a a way for us to be the best pilot. But that would be my, my passion. I'd say, don't please don't train your students just to pass the check ride. Hmm, that's good advice. So how do you, I mean, everybody is nervous when they go in for a check ride. How do you kind of put an applicant's mind at ease or, or what's, what's your briefing like before you start? Well, I have a list of items that I'm required to brief the applicant on. And some of that stuff is just standard stuff, talking about the set of standards we're going to be using, the Airman Certification Standards, talking about checklists and that sort of thing. But other than that, I do try to have a discussion with each pilot and talk about the kind of flying they expect to be doing. And that way we can sort of gear the check ride towards those scenarios that would make the most sense for that pilot. And I, I hope that makes people more comfortable. Generally, when people walk away from a check ride with me, they say, hey, thanks for making that as comfortable as it could have been. But I, I understand that that is a stressful day to start with. And so I try to do everything I can just to 
bring a more human aspect to it. Yeah, you know, I know um, a couple of years ago, uh, the FAA started to crack down on this idea of teaching during the check ride. I guess with the idea was that, well, as an examiner, you're there simply to examine and you're not there to sort of bestow knowledge. But I felt like, I mean, sure, you don't want somebody teaching through the test to basically give the person, uh, you know, a free ride necessarily. But I also feel like before they started to crack down on this, that there would just be, especially in the debrief, a couple of little nuggets that every examiner would give me that I thought were just incredibly valuable. And so how do you... I mean, there must be things that coming out of it, you say, man, I, I just wish that I could, you know, help the person with this or, you know, if you only would have done this differently or, hey, look, think about this moving forward. I mean, because obviously examiners, they have a wealth of knowledge. That's why they're there. How do you work within the constraints of those rules, but also give the applicant something that they can kind of walk away with? Well, the FAA says that no teaching is to happen during the check ride. So that means from the time you start until you hand them the, their certificate, no teaching is supposed to happen during that period. But I always keep good notes while we're flying and, and during the ground portion so that as soon as I were, we're done, I hand them their certificate, then I've got all kinds of things to say. And there's there's no rule against teaching when the check ride is over. And I, I think that you certainly should be able to take a lot away from your check ride experience from the debrief. There's a lot of great stuff that happens in the debrief, and so that's when I try to throw out all my positive things and the things that can be improved on. Okay. So you obviously are, are still doing a little bit of instructing, I think. So what is <laughs> – I, I feel like that's always got to be kind of a complex relationship because – whether it's, you know, your relationship with the local CFIs or, or even some of the students who know that they might see you later, is it, can it be challenging sometimes? And do you feel like you can still be the same instructor you used to be or, or, or does the dynamic change? The dynamic hasn't really changed for me. I, I still um, feel like the folks out at my local airport are my friends. And I think everybody understands that I have a job to do. There's a set of standards that we follow, but on check ride day, I'm I'm pulling for you, and I I want everybody to be able to meet the standards. And when they don't, it it makes me sad the same way it makes the applicant sad. So I don't know. Maybe maybe if you talk to the other people without me around, they might say something different. But <laughs> but I really feel like we're all on the same page and on the same team, and we all want the same thing. So I think the relationship with the other instructors out there is is still really a good one. Hmm. Now you also own a 172. And um, and I know you fly with your family at times. So, what has that been like for you? I mean, do you how do you use it, and and what's it been like to be able to fly with your family? Maybe when when you didn't get the chance to fly with your dad so much. I can tell you that on the pilot side of things, flying with my family is the most stressful flight I ever take. Uh, more stressful than check rides. More stressful than than flying at the airlines. It's just something about loading up everybody who is precious to you and putting them in the same airplane that gets to me. But keeping that in mind, I try to point out the the fun aspects. I, I try to walk my kids around the airplane and just make it as fun as we can possibly make it because you're right, those are going to be memories for them that they'll walk away with, that flight that we took with, with mom. So I hope they will think of it fondly and, and maybe that I can hide some of that stress I'm feeling. <laughs> So you 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 obviously are trying to be active about kind of passing it on and, and showing your own kids and and what about other young people? I mean you're you're kind of giving back through the examiner role, but um, what else are you doing to to mentor folks in the local area? I really have a passion for 
women in aviation, there there aren't enough of us. And so whenever I get to work with another female flight instructor or a, or a female student, I try to really take them under my wing and talk about the things I've learned in the industry. I just try to be a big encouragement to them. I hope it's working. Um, we need more. We need more. Yeah. So you said that there there aren't enough of you and that they need encouragement. I mean, what are some of the barriers that, that you felt like you faced as a woman in aviation and that and that you think some of these girls may face? And, and what is your advice to kind of get beyond those? Well, I guess my biggest barrier in aviation, as far as the path of my career has gone, would be that airline career and really missing home and missing my people and wanting to be at home rather than spending nights away in a hotel. And and I don't know if that's a girl thing. I've talked to men who feel the same way, but but I think it's something that women really feel is that we we want to be around our families and we want to be present. And so I would stress to other women getting into aviation that the airline path is a great path. And if it's for you, then that's awesome. But but there are so many other paths you can take in aviation. There are corporate careers where you don't fly on the weekends. There's what I do, being an examiner, being an instructor, working for the FAA. There are just so many different paths that aviation has to offer. And a lot of them are jobs where you get to be home with your family a good bit. So please don't let that deter you if, if you have a love for airplanes or an interest in, in aviation. Okay, fantastic. And so if, um, if there's a girl out there listening or, or anybody, how, um, how can they reach out to you or, or get in touch with you for, for more advice? Uh, my website, myaviation101.com. There's a contact form on there. And um, if you just send me a note, I will email you back. Okay, great. Natalie Bingham Hoover, thank you so much for joining us. And I hope everybody reads your column in AOP Pilot. And uh, good luck with your, your future applicants. Thanks for having me. And I appreciate it. All right, David. So she gave us a, a few tips for check rides. What's uh, I'm going to put you on the spot. What's one of your check ride tips? Successful check ride tip. Well, I'll tell you what. The main thing that I'm going to do when I uh, get my next check ride is try to do a little bit more investigation to the background of the check check ride pilot, and kind of find out and see what makes them tick or what rubs them the wrong way. I'm going to go the other way. Whatever rubs them wrong, I'm not going to do it. That's a great idea. Good advice. Good advice. All right, I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. You can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk. We are also on iTunes at the Sporties Takeoff app, and we're now on Spotify, so find us there too. All right, we'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangertalk from AOPA, your freedom to fly.